The Queen's husband, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, has died at 99 years of age. The prince, who recently spent a month in hospital with heart problems, was married to Queen Elizabeth II since 1947. Also on the show, we'll be checking in with our New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. He's turning his forensic gaze onto the issue of taxation in the US. And we'll look ahead to the welcome return of restaurants in England from Monday, albeit with only alfresco dining spaces for now, and mull over what it means for the hospitality trade. Monocle's panellists tackle these topics on today's late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 9th of April and I'm Josh Fennett speaking to you from Midori House here in London. I'm joined in studio today by our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck and our head of untonsured lockdown locks and radio output too, Tom Edwards. Welcome both to the show. Um, Andrew, it's Friday and that means that the listening several are likely clamouring to hear what's in store for your Saturday column that will arrive perhaps accompany them in bed tomorrow morning well don't don't hold on to anything too tightly that's all i can say because it's uh it, it's 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 a gentle one tomorrow it's everything from odd names for dogs uh a bit of a gardening moment even uh a, a kind of appear through the windows as london prepares to open up again slightly on monday um it's a gentle rock. And, but we're talking about hairstyles. I, I think you seem to have come as a Highland cattle, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure why you're criticising anyone else. And for those of you looking for a gentle rock in bed with Andrew tomorrow morning uh, who are foolish enough to have not signed up for the Monocle Minute, uh, you can do it. You can do it. You can head to monocle.com slash newsletters and see what Andrew has in store. See listeners or hear how I sidestepped that question there. <laughs> um, Tom, you've been busy as a beaver these past few days, clearing the decks, writing and rewriting and redrafting your out-of-office messages and preparing for a week off. What fun. What's know, on the cards? It's pretty radical, isn't it? Uh, a week in by the seaside, which is now legal here in the UK. So before anybody writes in to admonish me for my irresponsibility. Uh, yeah, week, week out of office. I, it's been a while. I'm not quite sure. What's going to happen? But I'll give it a bash. Are we allowed to tell people what coast or is it a security concern? Um, I will be adjacent to the wash. And tell us, a haircut before you go or while you're up there? No, no, no. What, in Norfolk, Andrew? Well, I, maybe some kind of agricultural worker I would be able say, to shear you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If there's a shearing going, <laughs> what do they do? Plunge them into a sheep dip, Andrew. Maybe. I'll give, it, I'll give that a bash and all. Uh, no, when I get back. Because <laughs> it is intriguing how your hair now curls up over your headphones. It's very thick. I, if listeners uh, want to know, I can't believe anybody does. Um, it's like an animal's pelt. It's a bit like when ivy covers dense. it covers a house and you realise it's undone all the foundations. I found that with some of your presenting recently. Yeah, and I'm probably having that effect on the artifice that is monocle, to be honest. So maybe we should move on. Well, I think we are going to move on. We need to, we need to change gear slightly for the top of today's show. The big news here in the UK is, of course, the death of Prince Philip. Um, The death of the Duke of Edinburgh was in no sense a real shock. He was 99 years old and has been in poor health, but it is, for many and most, a jolt. For 70-plus years, he's been married to the most famous woman on earth and therefore become a figure of global renown in and of himself. Few listening to this will be able to recall a time when they didn't know who he was. We are being told uh, that Prince Philip has The royal family has just announced the the death of the 99-year-old, saying His Royal Highness passed away peacefully this morning at Windsor Castle. Like the expert carriage driver that he was, he helped to steer the royal family and the monarchy 
so that it remains an institution indisputably vital to the balance and happiness of our national life. Once only in 1100 years of British kingship has there been such a day. An heiress presumptive to the throne marries the man of her choice. The setting is Westminster Abbey. To its west door he is someone who doesn't take houses, easily to compliments, but he has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. Take the Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. Take the Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. It exists, and it has been very successful for a thousand years. It has the advantage that it involves a whole family, which means that there are different age groups are part of it. It isn't one single middle-aged man, no matter how worthy he may be. Um, Andrew, uh, I'll come to you first. Uh, Prince Philip, whether people are a fan of him or not, has been ever present as the Queen's consort since her coronation in 1953. Um, it's a big job, but I won't, <laughs> I won't make you go through it meticulously. But give us a bit of an overview of his career as a royal. Tell me if you think this is quite a poignant time for his passing as well, given all the, the rather high-profile departure of the Sussexes from the family fray recently. Where does this kind of leave the royal family at this moment? Look, he was he was a colourful figure, and perhaps you needed some colour next to the Queen, whose job has always been duty first. You know, that's that's how she's seen life. She, she's put duty before family on many occasions. He was there as 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 a bit of I don't know colour jollity, <laughs> a little bit off the cuff next to her. But again, he he saw life as duty as well. He saw his job to support his wife. Many of the obituaries appearing today talk about this notion of him always being two steps behind her. He knew his his position, he knew his role, and he did it and he defended it. Now, whatever you think of the, the royals, it, it, it means that he held her in position in a, a really important way. And I think that, you know, as you get older and older, the, the Queen is also in her, in her 90s. We've, in, mentally, we've, we've held off perhaps thinking about their passing, this generation of royals, because they've just been around forever. You know, they've been around since the 50s in charge of the royal family. But now you kind of begin to think there is going to be a changing of the guard in a, in a bigger way in the next few years, no doubt. And without him by her side, I wonder if already the role will change a little bit. And once that goes, then what happens next? You know, now, wh- whatever you think about the royal family... They, at the moment, pay, play a very important constitutional role. They play a, a, a role in what the country sees itself as, even the people who don't like it. They, they, they see in, in the royal family something that they have to respond to. Once, once this generation has gone, you know, will, will the nation take to King Charles? Will the nation want a King William instead? Will the nation have be fed up with with the whole thing? So I, I think he's played an important role in keeping the institution in place, even though he has been a little bit of a wild card. Tom, as the head of Monocle Radio, you know about the importance of continuity, don't you? Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Philip, who was known for making gaffes, uh, speaking his mind, not suffering fools lightly. These are the kind of tactful things that generous obituary writers are bound to say. Um, a lot of what he said over time that was uh, that was taken and then publicised was not politically correct. But he did, as Andrew said, bring a little bit of humanity to the role, um, something we don't always see from the British royal family. Yeah, I think his sort of humanising effect is really important. And actually, 
certainly, you know, from my knowledge of him, which began, I guess, in the sort of early 1980s when you became, I became aware of who he was in relation to, to the Queen as the head of state, um, he was already this sort of grandfatherly, slightly curmudgeonly, but essentially sort of good-hearted man. And I think what will resonate with people is exactly what Andrew said. He offers a slightly more... Strangely, even though you know he himself is from these sort of royal classes of a, 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 a storied family, you know, in Greece, but he there was something about him that I think people could recognise. He, you know, who 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 didn't have that grandparent who would sort of put their put their put their foot in it. Now, this is not to brush some of his misdeeds under the under the carpet. He he doesn't have a whiter than white uh, sort of track record, and indeed he said some actually pretty terrible some pretty terrible things and I don't think it's bad to reflect upon that even on on the day that his passing passing was announced what he did do uh, is uh, as Andrew said he he gave them a more sort of human face and I think he enabled Queen Elizabeth to go about her business with a kind of maybe personal freedom that this life of service and all these restrictions on her that, that, that made very difficult so he 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 enabled her to to, to do that. I, I think Andrew's exactly right. I wonder what her appetite is for continuing with that really selfless public service. You know, she's very old. I'm sure she's wearied by particularly the last, what, 18 months, two years with these sort of schisms that we're supposed to believe are sort of within the family. Without him at her side, I just wonder what her facility to continue to deal with that will, will be and it could presage this big generational shift that Andrew's talking about. And just on this outspokenness, you know, I think there is a sense that some of these things were a bit made up and embellished over, over the years, people wanting to have, have a go at him. There was one where he was meant to have said to a group of you know, deaf children standing by a brass band, no wonder you're deaf, you're bound to be deaf if you stand next to a brass band. He pointed out that, in fact, you know, he was a patron of the the Royal National Institute for the Deaf and would have never have said such a thing. His mother suffered from deafness and he was acutely aware of how difficult it was to be deaf. But it, it was a story that someone made up and it, it stuck. But what's in, interesting about these things are because they were in you know, in the press and they, they, they coloured people's opinion of him, he was one of the, the, the first royals to see this very complicated relationship that the royal family needs to have with the media. So he both... He, he he tried to open up to the media in interesting ways, got burnt by it a little bit. He he knew when the, the media were trampling on his family and would hit back. And the other thing is, you know, he had both an extraordinary life and, and extraordinary opportunities, but he had also the dullest job in the world in a way, this, this two steps behind thing. And I think sometimes when he was on public engagements, cutting another ribbon in a, in a factory with a group of people who were on their best behaviour and saying nothing interesting, he liked to kind of throw a grenade and see what the impact would be because he was, he was just... He must have just got tired of it at times, and and you can see the temptation for for in in a in a world of pre-social media for thinking oh, I can get away with being a bit rude here. Yeah, it's true, um, Andrew. Just the final point on this, and then we will move on. I promise. Uh, the argument made usually in favour of monarchies is that they provide a nation, or in the Queen's case, fifteen nations, with some level of stability, but. When you talked about the passing as being a potential baton shift between generations, how do you think this will be seen outside of the UK? Because we're talking a little bit from a UK perspective. For the other countries that are evaluating whether they think they need the monarchy in the years and the generations to come. Well, I think in most other countries, you know, the, the royal families tend to be now of such kind of you know, kind of low 
you know, they're, they're not they're not the grand families of the past. You know, the, the, the Nordics. You know, they're, you know, they're famously poodling around in their bicycles, and they they they're all social democrats, and they they're there. You know, certainly by the will of the people, but they're not that different from the people. Whereas our royal family still tries to stay apart in many ways. And again, this this complicated relationship with the public and with the media is that if if you open yourself up too much, then you're just the same as everybody else. And why the hell do we we need you if you hold back in a scene as being too aloof then you're disconnected from the the, the mere mortals in your country and you should be got rid of but i don't know i i wonder whether people when they they look at britain they, they, they they're cleverer than we think they don't just see a, a, an old royal family and think oh they're, they're a bunch of losers because they've got a royal family or they're a bunch of winners because they've got a royal family they see the royal family as both uh, an attraction as an economic attraction they understand how it's used as branding and you only have to look at the fascination with every single member of the royal family in every single media outlet around the world to realise that actually people are still intrigued by this extraordinary institution, whether for good or bad, that plays such a fundamental role in the life of contemporary Britain. And I've taken more time than our producer wanted to on that item, so I need to move swiftly on to the next one. Now it's time to check in with our correspondent in the Big Apple. That's Henry Rees Sheridan. Today he delves like an over-caffeinated accountant into the controversial plan to raise taxes on the rich in New York. Take it away, Henry. New York contains an enormous number of very rich people. The figures for 2020 aren't available yet, but in 2019... 10,435 ultra-high net worth individuals, that's people with more than 30 million US dollars in net worth, called the Big Apple home. That's more than any other city in the world. New York's relationship to its rich residents is a fraught one. On the one hand, the presence of very rich people brings prestige, spending power and lots of tax dollars. On the other hand, New York City's rich are extremely good at segregating themselves from the rest of society, particularly in the fields of education, healthcare and housing, when they're not extracting a service from them. The less wealthy of New York know the rich are here, and they're told by politicians from the right to the centre of the political spectrum to feel thankful for that. But it can be difficult to understand where the tax dollars of the wealthy are going when the city's basic infrastructure is in such bad shape. Politicians are scared to tax the rich. As individual careerists, they fear wealthy donors will abandon them if taxes are raised. And all but the most leftist governments tend to be swayed by the belief that the wealthy will leave if they are taxed too heavily, decimating the tax base. This is why, historically, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has been soft on taxing the rich. In fact, Cuomo is so scared of the rich leaving New York City, he's willing to go to extreme measures to keep them here. In August of last year, he described the desperate pleas he was making to the rich people who had left the city in the midst of the pandemic to get them to come back. I say, you've got to come back, said Cuomo. We'll go to dinner. I'll buy you a drink. Come over. I'll cook. This week, though, a New York State budget passed that will make New York City's millionaires pay the highest personal income taxes in the nation. There are three main reasons this has happened. First, the state badly needs to make up for the shortfall in revenue caused by the coronavirus. 
Second, left-wing Democrats are stronger in Albany than they have been for a long time. And third, Cuomo has been weakened by a spate of sexual harassment and misgovernance scandals. It's impossible to say for sure if the wealthy who have fled the city would in fact return. One thing's for certain. If they do, Cuomo's going to be strapped into his apron for quite a while and flapping his spatula like a man possessed. I think I've mentioned before that this year is the first that New York is using ranked choice voting in certain local elections. Put simply, instead of just voting for one person, New Yorkers can rank up to five candidates in order of preference. If no candidate gains more than 50% of the vote in the first round of voting, it moves to a second round where the candidate with the least votes is eliminated, and so on, until there are only two candidates left. Of those two, the candidate with the most votes is declared the winner. There are three main benefits that are supposed to come from this system. First, it means more votes count, because a voter's choice isn't necessarily wasted just because they didn't pick the candidate who got the most votes. Second, it's meant to lead to a more diverse field of winners. Third, by softening the stakes, the system is meant to reduce negative campaigning and candidates attacking each other. Any election that goes to a second round will lead to more votes being counted. Whether the system will lead to greater diversity in New York is yet to be seen, but when it comes to reducing tension between candidates, I'm afraid to say that in New York at least, ranked choice voting has already failed. In Staten Island, Democratic candidates attempted to form a pact not to engage in an old-school political tactic of legally challenging each other's petitions to be included on the ballot. This has fallen apart, with challenges already coming in. In the mayoral race, an initially amicable atmosphere has been pierced in recent weeks, with candidates piling onto the front-runner, Andrew Yang. Incidentally, the most recent angle of attack came after Yang suggested tax incentives to lure white-collar commuters back to Manhattan. Some people view that as a regressive taxation policy. It seems you can't engineer the hardball tactics out of New York politics. This week, the New York news website The City reported that dozens of projects remain unfinished that were drawn up in the wake of Superstorm Sandy to protect the city against future catastrophic weather events. And they might not be completed before the next environmental disaster. Happily, it seems that the non-profits that run Bryant Park, Herald Square Park and Greeley Square Park in Manhattan are more responsive to adapting infrastructure to new conditions than the city government. Only a week after the state legalised marijuana, the no-smoking signs in the parks have been amended with the qualification of any kind. A wealth of insights, as you might say, there from Henry Rees Sheridan. And zooming onwards, uh, today we want to talk about another UK story. England is gearing up for an important reopening of the hospitality trade from Monday, which will see restaurants and pubs spilling out onto pavements, supplying drinkers and diners with meals al fresco. 
Um, it's been a tough time for the hospitality trade, despite some canny folks making forays into delivery kits or diversifying into grocery shops to stay afloat. Uh, despite the boost the opening will inevitably bring from next week, Adam Hyman of the UK consultancy Code Hospitality warns that the industry may bear the brunt of the pandemic a little further down the line. Let's take a listen to what he had to say earlier on The Globalist. Uh, and the big thing we're all waiting for in the UK is the rent moratorium. So at the moment, restaurants haven't had to pay rent. Um, that's meant to end at the end of September in this country. And that's going to be a big date to decide actually what happens with restaurants and whether lots will just have to hand their keys back to their landlords. That was Adam Hyman speaking on The Globalist on Monocle 24 earlier today. Andrew, um, we spoke to our colleague in Tokyo um, earlier this week uh, who gleefully reminded us that him and his ilk and everyone in Japan have been going to restaurants almost throughout the entire pandemic. It seemed almost a shock to him that many restaurants in the UK have been closed since late November, is it? A very, very long time. How important is the step from Monday to A, helping out the hospitality trade, which we care deeply about for Monocle, but also for kind of raising public morale and and, and being something that people can look forward to after a, a winter of discontent? I think even if you have no intention of going into a bar or restaurant, it's important. It's important because it brings life back on the streets. It re-engages all sorts of other businesses. All, all other untold things begin to happen when you walk past businesses and they're bustling and there's life and there's activity. It makes you feel good about yourself. It makes you think feel more active about things. It makes you want to engage with the world more. So I think it's important on Monday, but for our listeners around the world, the, the, the step is that people are allowed to serve food and drink in al fresco settings. So at this point, you're not allowed to go and hunker down with a large group of people indoors and have a nice boozy night. But I, I, I do think it's important. I think it's good for people's well-being. And as we joked about at the top of the show, on Monday you're allowed to get a haircut as well. Somehow, just you know how good you feel when you get a haircut and you, you've spruced yourself up a bit. That's what's happening to cities and towns across England on Monday. The whole thing is, is kind of getting a haircut, being spruced up, being polished up, getting ready to go. And yeah, they, these places had a terrible, terrible time. And it's great news as long as we don't get caught in one of these two steps forward, one step back moments again. So as long as this is a one-way journey now, then businesses can potentially begin to make back some of the losses. Just a tiny thing, a pub near me, uh, I was speaking to the guy who I know a little bit. He said he's he'd, he's lost £100,000 on two pubs that he has the leases on during the last year. And then I spoke to somebody else who runs a pub down in uh, down in um, Devon who said they have lost on a small pub in in a in a in a town that makes money from tourism, they've lost a hundred thousand pounds as well on one pub over that time. So you see how much money has to be made back by these businesses to really get back in the, in a healthy position. But because we won't be able to travel very much and people are going to be stuck in the cities, it is possible for there to be an incredible rebound. Let's just hope that there are no no faltering back and forth steps over the coming weeks. Tom, the pandemic has whacked hospitality harder than most industries. Um, and we did see a bit of, you know, creativity, should we say, around, um, well, from the Chancellor of the Exchequer, around the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which put people in mind of going out more. It has since been uttered that that may have actually helped spread the virus. But do you think the government has any other tricks up its sleeve or is likely to extend some more help to pubs and restaurants? Adam mentioned there the... the 
idea of reducing rents or, or looking after them. Do you think that's something in the pipeline? I think they're going to have to. And I think because exactly as Andrew's mentioned, just from a couple of anecdotal cases, the scale of the problem, the scale of those losses over a sustained period of time are so profound. But worse than that, actually, a lot of people who worked in hospitality, particularly frontline staff, they've, they've, they've gone. Some, in some cases, literally, they've left this country altogether. But they've also moved on by force of circumstance to other things. They had very little support initially. They might be one, two, three career changes uh, forward in their life since this all began at the, you know, in the first quarter of 2020. So the idea that you can just throw a switch and take things back to how they were, I think, is, is fanciful. And hopefully there will be special dispensation for the hospitality sector, as with other uh, cultural uh, sectors as well, theatre, music, any kind of live venues. Pe- pe- I think ultimately the Chancellor will have to dip, dig deeper for longer. And quite right, because these these areas are too important for our collective social benefit to, to, be, to be ignored. What really strikes me about what Andrew said is this idea that, you know, we have been through this all together. You know, the pandemic is one of those rare, truly life-altering things that's happened to everyone at the same time, in the same places. And so these little moments of relief levity a reopening you know it is a bit like the kind of back to school vibe but that was always for pockets of the community or certain areas would be excited about certain things it's not often that i can recall any event where everybody you know whatever you're calling discipline wherever you live in the country will be all relishing the same thing which is social in character at the same time and i think there's something quite amazing about that even just wandering around london this week there's been this palpable sense of you sort of overhear conversations people excitedly remarking on more people being around it's something very powerful and social about this um, which is at least as important as the boon this will provide to the hospitality sector last up i'm going to give you a little meal ticket you get to go to one place you're having one meal and one drink what's it going to be um andrew i'm going to start with you uh, well, unfortunately, I don't think they're going to open in this first round, but just I, I'd, I'd support some in my neighbourhoods. We have uh, two or three good places, Noble Rot, a very good restaurant with a, a, an extensive wine cellar, nice food, great to kind of be indoors there as well. So we're going to have to wait for that until May. But I'm looking forward to going back and supporting the places that are in my neighbourhood that, that need backing from the people who are there. Tom Edwards? Well, likewise. I've already been in touch with the Queens in Walthamstow, <laughs> Lawrence and his brilliant crew. Is that the, speci- and... the speciality bar? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Um, but I think that's the thing, to see those kind of friendly local faces. I've got a couple of bookings for up in Norfolk next week as well. If, if I could have, if cost and logic broke no odds on the conversation, I would love to go somewhere like, I don't know, one of Simon Rogan's. Long Clume in Cumbria, go up to the north, that would be fantastic. But listen, if I can pop round to my local pub around the corner and have a probably quite chilly drink sat on the pavement outside. That's more than enough for me. And we'll be starting a Kickstarter campaign on (laughs) monocle.com to get Tom those uh, two warm cans of K-cider that he can enjoy on the stoop outside his house because he hasn't booked a place at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Terrible foresight there. Sadly, that's all the time we have on today's Late Edition. A big thank you to our guests, Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards, our studio manager today, Louis Allen, and our producer, all the way from Milan, how exotic. It's Ed Stocker. I'm Josh Fennett in London. The Late Edition is back at the very same time on Monday and I'm wishing you all a very happy weekend.